Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Before we get into my moving conversation with Judge Rosemary Aquilina, I want to warn you that this episode may not be suitable for all listeners. We'll be discussing explicit, difficult topics involving sexual assault, trauma, and descriptions of testimonials from the Larry Nassar sexual abuse trial. If you or someone you know is dealing with a sexual assault, you can call the National Sexual Assault Line at 800-656-4673. In November 2016, Larry Nassar was indicted on several charges of sexually assaulting a child. It's a story many of us are familiar with because of the sheer number of his victims and their status. His abuse spanned decades, and many of these girls and women were Olympic athletes. More than 330 women came forward to say that Nassar had abused them. Of that number, more than 150 of them testified at his sentencing hearing. They were able to testify thanks to the judge presiding over Nassar's case, Judge Rosemary Aquilina. It was her decision to open the courtroom to anyone who wanted to speak. Inviting victims of Nassar's wasn't a part of the original trial. Judge Aquilina is a true friend and a mentor. She served as a character witness in my own trial. In the years I have known her, she's never ceased to amaze me. After 20 years in the military, she became an author, speaker, law professor, and perhaps most importantly, a 30th Circuit Court judge. Today on Torched, I'm talking to Judge Aquilina about the Nasser case and how she's helped empower the young women who bravely took the stand during his trial. I'm not usually one to cry on microphone, but this is an emotional episode for me, both because of the weight of the story and also in gratitude for how Judge Aquilina showed up in my life. Judge Aquilina's compassionate responses were a beacon of encouragement during an incredibly traumatic process. She individually reassured each woman testifying that she was heard and not alone. And she allowed everyone that wished to speak a platform. What began as a dozen women willing to step forward turned into so many more, one empowering the next. I couldn't be happier about our next guest that we're interviewing. Not only is she one of the most prolific, empowered, and brilliant women I have ever met, she's also become a dear friend. But for the audience, could you please introduce yourself and tell us what you do? 
I'm Judge Rosemarie Aquilina. I am a 30th Circuit Court judge in Michigan, Ingham County. And right now I have 100% felony docket. I'm retired military, the mother of five, an author of four books, writing more. I am a motivational speaker and a good friend of yours. And I'm so honored and privileged that you asked me to be on your podcast finally. I would have asked you day one, but I know your schedule. And yeah, if you just heard her list her resume and the things that she is presently currently doing and has done, it's just incredible. This woman has the capacity of 10 people. I always ask you what your secret is, but... My secret is doing something every day and making sure you do self-care. I think that us working women, and now you're a new mom, we don't do enough for ourselves. And so if you want to empower yourself every day, make sure you're doing self-care regardless of what that is so that you can, like I do, write, cook, sew, paint. I do something for myself so that I can block out the world and rejuvenate. And I think we all need to do that mindfulness and that self-care every day. There's the secret. So Judge Aquilina, could you walk us through your career in law? I'm old. I'm 64, so I have had a really long career. I went to law school because my father, I wanted to be a writer. My father said, uh, how are you going to support yourself? So I one day screamed at him, I'm going to be a lawyer uh, because doctors hate lawyers. And ultimately, I went to my first sign of, you know, my, my empowerment was saying, I'm going to be a lawyer against my dad. And so I went to law school and then I became I became the first female JAG officer in the history of the Michigan Army National Guard, opened up my own firm, lobbying firm and law firm. Ultimately, I had to make a choice. And although lobbying pays better, I really liked the law. So I opened up a law firm and then ultimately decided to become a judge, was a district court judge and then now a circuit court judge. So I've been a civilian judge for 18 years and was a military judge for 20 years. Along the way, I had a radio show called Ask the Family Lawyer. I've had five children. I've written four books. I've done just a lot of different things because I think, especially for women of my era, and maybe all women, but the law gave me an opportunity to venture into places that otherwise, for me, were not easily gotten into. You know, the doors Mm -hmm. were just not open. And so along the way... I've had to fight for every degree, for every opportunity, for every job. My career has not been an easy one, but it's been a productive one. I'm also a law professor at two law schools. I've been teaching law for about 35 years. Other than a rebellion against your father and sort of a, uh, let's call it a rebellion against society, how specifically did you become interested in criminal law? You know, that's a really good question because I had in my practice primarily done family law and some civil litigation, some minor criminal kinds of things. And ultimately, once I got elected, I really felt that I was able to listen to the backstory of criminals and the victims and make a difference in both their lives. I don't send people to prison or to jail without thinking, you know, first, can I rehabilitate this human being? And I think that's really important. And what I learned in my practice about me was that, I and I had one particular case that really set me over the edge. And it was a, a mom who had a budding teenager who would use the belt on her when she was leaving home in the middle of the night to go see her boyfriend. And it wasn't just the belt, it was the belt buckle. 
And this young woman had lumps all over her. I mean, bruises and lumps and just gashes. And it was horrifying to me. And when I sat across the conference table in my office from this mother, and I said, look at these pictures. And I put these awful, colorful pictures that I had gotten from law enforcement and put them in front of her because that was going to be the evidence. She said, well, that's the only way I can control her. And I literally had to bite the inside of my cheeks and sit on my hands because I wanted to wallop her. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, you can't do that. But I thought now's the time to run for judge because I can make a difference in both rehabilitation. And if that doesn't work, put them behind bars, retrain, do what I can do as a judge. And so I became sort of enamored with criminal law because with civil, we in America value money. Mm. We need to value lives. We need to value rehabilitation. And I found that that was one place where I could truly help both sides make a difference. And it was someone who is a narcissist, doesn't want to listen, and thinks that they have control of the world in their way in violation of others' rights. I can put them behind bars (laughs) because ultimately, when I die, I want to leave a better world for my children. Mm. And so this really helps me say, okay, I can at least go home happy, you know, and that the world is better for your children and mine, because what else do we leave behind? We don't take our our wallets with us. No question about that. And I think this is my opinion in observing you and knowing you. You have this unorthodox way of being on the bench. And from what I've seen, you speak to people like they are human beings. You give it to them straight, and you also treat them like they are worthy people. And when they're not, you let them know that too. And I think that that has always been so inspirational to me. And I can really see that you are there for for those reasons you just cited. You're not just up there on a power trip. You're not up there to clock in. Like even after these decades of doing this, you care deeply about the fabric of our society and you care deeply about what happens to these people. I continue to be so moved by that because I'm sure in your position, it would be so easy to get bitter, to get numb to it all. And it just seems like you stay open. And I just, I just love that. Thank you. You know, I I have been in front of, in practice, judges who just sort of rubber stamp. It's like one Mm -hmm. sentence fits all, one solution fits all. They don't want to take the time. I work with some judges that are like that as well. And I don't think that in the law, one size fits all. I don't think it's black or white. I think we have to look for the gray, the rehabilitation, and what in the long run helps our community, our society, the victim's family, the victim, and by the way, the defendant and their family as well. Can they be reformed? Can they go back to our community or not? And that takes a lot of listening and discussion. And my big interest is, what's the backstory? Why are you in front of me? What happened to you? That Because you don't look like the person mm-hmm. that would do something like this. And I know there's reasons. Mm-hmm. And I have a chat. Mm-hmm. And when you find out the backstory, that's how you really help someone. And it takes mm-hmm. a lot of time. And yeah, I don't just clock in and out. I don't care if we stay till six o'clock. Mm-hmm. I don't care if I spend one day or one week or 10 weeks on one case. Because my job is really one case at a time. And each voice matters. Absolutely. My next question leads into one particularly deplorable human being that you gained national recognition for presiding over the case that he was involved in. And we're talking about Larry Nasser and the sexual abuse trial. Can you give us some background on that case and walk us through that? 
So Larry Nasser was the doctor for the Olympics and for the gymnasts, and he treated people who also were not in the sports world, but primarily he treated the gymnasts, Olympic gymnasts. And he was doing this pelvic floor manipulation, which is really something for old people, and children don't need it. But what he was doing is um, putting his ungloved hands in females. There were a few males as well, but primarily females, and without lubricant, and basically telling them that as his fingers were inside of them, he was relaxing their body. So that's how it related to the ankle or the swollen shoulder. And of course, these are children and they didn't know. He also did not have signed consent forms from the parents. They didn't know. So many people have really called out the parents. And I'm here to tell you, the parents didn't know because there was no consent. There was no discussion. He really put it out there that it was, you know, a manipulation um, of hips and legs and all of this, but it really wasn't. It was him putting his fingers in what we now know is over 505 uh, vaginas and uh, getting his uh, pleasure out of that rather than treatment. And you know, I know this because I listened to 156 sister survivors, as I dubbed them, 169 overall, because there were a lot of people who were upset with him. And I just let everybody talk. He groomed and gaslighted everybody in front of him uh, who complained or who was in his office and basically put loose shorts on these girls, covered them up with a towel, stacked towels so the parents or whoever was with the girls could not see the, what he was doing and uh, told nurses and others to leave the room. So he was alone with them and he did this pelvic floor manipulation. People saw me get mad at him. But to this day, to my knowledge, he still says he's a good doctor and that at the most that was malpractice. Not, and it was clearly sexual assault over and over and over again. Oh, it's so sick. And you got to keep in mind that these Trinigans are, and I use her as an example by permission, because I just think it's so horrifying. She's one of the oldest known victims. She was assaulted since she was, I think, six or seven years old. He assaulted her an estimated, I think, 848 times, something like that. Okay. There was only one charge. Although Nasser assaulted each of his victims many times, in front of me, there were, I think, 28 or 29 charges originally. He pled to seven lifetime offenses. And then they also forgave the um, additional child pornography that was on his phone. So he got the deal of a lifetime. And he assaulted hundreds of girls thousands of times collectively. How long was this going on for? It was going on, I think, for over well, about 25 30 years because, you know, it was the first group of girls when he was a licensed doctor, but he had also worked with people in the sports arena prior to that when he'd been working with gymnasts, I think, since he was maybe college days. So I don't know how many others are out there who he assaulted who were not part of this first group, but if somebody would have reported this and believed, I mean, they did have some reports but if somebody would have done an investigation after a report, a full investigation, independent of anything he said, 
This case never would have been mine. And that's one of my biggest gripes is why were there so many co-conspirators? Why is mm-hmm. a dollar valued over the life of a little girl? Mm-hmm. There had to be red flags. There had to be over those years people that worked with him or even some of the victims that said, maybe this isn't right. I mean, there's no way that didn't that didn't occur, right? Totally. And what's interesting about that is, for example, Michigan State, there's about 6,000 documents that we will never see. There's probably more than that. But what's interesting to me is, where are the nurses? Where are the other doctors? Where are the secretaries? Where are all those people in the offices? He shouldn't have been alone treating anybody. No. And so why didn't they report? Anybody who saw it and didn't report, in my mind, they're a co-conspirator to the crime. And honestly, I'm not thinking that, oh, let's go convict everybody, but let's use this Mm -hmm. horrifying event as a teachable moment. Mm -hmm. Let's look at how we train coaches and doctors and reporting procedures and safety mechanisms. Let's make sure that parents can go in every part of the room. Why are there places where parents could not go with their young children? There's so many, many questions, and there's so many co-conspirators But without the proper investigation, turning over the documentation and doing that, this teachable moment, this time in history is lost. Mm -hmm. Man. So during the sentencing, you chose to include the 156 victim impact statements, which was a decision that many have praised and that I found incredibly powerful. Can you explain first what a victim impact statement is? There is the Crime Victims' Rights Act. There's one in every state, and then there's also a federal one. Basically, it says that victims have the right to be part of the process at every stage, and they also have the right to make a statement at sentencing. So if I remember correctly, Nassar took a plea deal, and he only pled guilty to seven counts, even though there were hundreds of victims. And it sounds like the plea hearing was a place where you could use your power as a judge to give more of those victims a place to be heard. Crime doesn't have a limit. I want you to think about any kind of crime. It has a rippling effect. And so if you've been affected by the crime, I read the Crime Victims' Rights Act as that broad definition. There are judges who say only the pled two counts, right? So the prosecutors ended up putting that, uh, I don't remember if it was 100 or 125, or they put some number in there. And I said, no, I, I meant all. And I let all, because I've done that in every case. It really makes a difference to that backstory, to the victims, to the crime that has rippled out very far. And it's just so healing. So originally, there were going to be about a dozen testify. And then, and I had said, you don't have to put your name. You can use a number or a letter, or make up a name. Mm -hmm. I need to know who you are, but publicly, I don't care what the public says your name is, right? It's the speaking that's important. So originally, there were like a dozen, and then there were 60 and 80. And then ultimately, as each girl stood up, they empowered the next one, and the next one, and the next one. So ultimately, when there were only about six who were going to use their name, the reverse happened. They came up and they said, I am not a number. I am a name. And you hurt me. And it was really very, very powerful. And so there were only about six who didn't use their name with good reason. They were very young. And really, Trine Gonzer, I think, is the one who, the only one that got, really got to him. And basically her message, which I just thought was so 
brilliant. It had the beginning of, a kind, it was almost biblical. My friend, what have you done? She approached it from, you know, you were my very good friend. Oh. And I can't believe you have done this. And I believed you. And and she really got to him. And I just thought that approach was unique and genuine. And that cut into him. But the rest, he just didn't seem to pay attention or care. When you say it got to him, how did he express that? He started to cry. She shook him to his core. The rest, and maybe that's why he then behaved, I think, poorly uh, the rest of the time, acting like he didn't care, wasn't paying attention, was writing notes to his lawyer, which he has the right to do. But the girls would constantly say, look at me when I'm speaking, because he was zoned out. And he just shuffled the blame off and said, I'm a good doctor. Well, how do you think the victim impact statements influenced uh, your sentencing decision? Ultimately, uh, it gave me the backstory of what he was doing, why he was doing it, how he was doing it, and really his overall mindset. And it's a good question because as a judge, I have to look at, can he be rehabilitated? What's the impact on others? What's the impact on the victims? All of that. And ultimately, he turned around to the group and always tried to keep control of the whole process through those seven days. But ultimately, when it came time for him to speak, instead of truly apologizing and being remorseful, really, he put the spotlight back on himself, which after listening and seeing all the pain, the heartbreak, a suicide of a father, a suicide of a sister survivor, hearing from his colleagues who had, he had received referrals from, how distraught they were, he did not show remorse. He did not show anything except, I'm in the limelight. I did this for you. No, he did it for himself. Did this for who? I don't understand that. Yeah. So he pled to make it easier on the girls so they didn't have to go to trial. So it was all about him. Yeah. Because predators like the control. So he was basically saying, I took this plea deal for you. So you didn't have to go to trial. Well, I can tell you especially now everything's over and I've talked to some of the girls, they would have been happy to go to trial and they continue to go to trial yeah. on a number of different things that went wrong, right? They want their story heard, not for selfish reasons, but so it never happens to anyone else. So they would have gladly gone to trial. And he was basically saying, I saved you a trial and all the pain of testifying. Wow. Right? Yeah. Wow. 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 Complete narcissist, no never kidding. got the message that what he did was wrong. So, it, you know, I have to balance that as a judge. No kidding. How do I balance that? When you sentenced Larry Nassar, you said something to him that resounded. <laughs> I mean, that was written and rewritten. Can, can you tell our audience what you said to him? I just signed your death warrant. Yes, that's what you said. It's been on t-shirts and mugs and in headlines. And, you know, it's nothing I planned to say. But why did I say that? Because I felt the pain of those sister survivors and their families. Pain seven days in my courtroom. And it wasn't just the pain, it was the fear. He was out there. Something should have been done sooner. They wished they were heard sooner. No one took action. And I wanted each and every one of them to know that they were now safe. So I just signed your death warrant was a message to them 
He wasn't getting out. They were safe and they could take all the time they needed to heal. I, I'm just a little, uh, you know, I just, I just had a daughter. So, you know, it's different. You know? It does. It does from especially anybody who has children or who was afraid in the dark. I mean, there's that boogeyman in the closet. He was their boogeyman. Mm-hmm. And I wanted them to know he was gone. Yeah. And so those are real life. And I can be called out on that all day long. I don't care. So get me off the bench. I'll go do something else. (laughs) I did what I felt in that moment was right. And I think overwhelmingly across the world, they got it. And the few naysayers who didn't, that's okay. I didn't aim to please everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I thought it was awesome. Thank you. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. What do you feel or what do you know about the effects of the impact statements on the Nasser survivors? It catapulted their healing. They came to me in the courtroom very shy, almost curled up in a ball. You could see as they came up to talk how very shy and withdrawn they were. And once they said, may I speak to him? And I said, yes. And then they spoke to him and then we had a little chat and I tried to give each one some empowering message for them. They literally uh, grew 10 feet and they left so confident and so you could see the healing. You could see them dropping their pain. You could see and feel the healing. And what it did for them is not only catapult their healing, but gave them their voice back and their strength back. And it really sent a message to other survivors. Be like me. Come to court. Tell your story because it does matter. And then we saw this outpouring of victims coming with their letters, um, bringing their parents, bringing their husbands, their boyfriends, their daughters, whomever, to testify, to talk to the judge, not just in my courtroom, but across the world. And those who don't have that opportunity, I've heard from victims Boys, girls, men, women from across the world who said, 
I want to talk to you. I only want to talk to you because we can't do that in our country. But I feel that you gave a safe place to the girls and I want to be in that safe place to tell my story. And I think that since this, other judges have started to allow this. um, And I hope that continues. And never did I think that we'd still be talking about this years and years later. It's, well, it's super powerful and it had a big impact. And and I'm sure that's not the first time you've seen this practice bring about healing. Seeking legal action for abuse can be a really difficult thing for survivors of abuse to do. And it can be an emotionally exhausting process. What role does legal justice play in victims' processing of their trauma? We need to get better at listening to victims. And we just need to get better in terms of timely trying these cases. Believe the victim, Mm. right? It's not up for us to judge the victim. It is up for us to report Mm -hmm. what is being told. It is Mm -hmm. then up to law enforcement Mm -hmm. to investigate a proper investigation When they are satisfied that there is one crime or a dozen of crimes or whatever they find, it needs to be turned over to the prosecutor who decides if misdemeanor or felony charges will be issued. The process right now is pretty leaky. They shouldn't have to wait years for to go to trial. So how do we become a better society? We become accountable for each and every human being. And we report. Otherwise, we become a co-conspirator to whatever crime we see and don't report. You and I don't want to be co-conspirators. We want to speak out. (laughs) We want justice. We want accountability. We want Mm -hmm. to be the voice for those who don't have a voice. Mm -hmm. And we're lacking in those cases. So much is going on that's not being reported. So much. You know, because this is Nasser's case, but let's talk about, you know, R. Kelly and Cosby and Epstein and Delane Maxwell. And let's talk about human trafficking. Mm -hmm. The only business that you literally can start with zero dollars. You get a human, you traffic them, instant profit. We have to send a message that we will no longer stand by and not report. We want accountability. We want prosecution and we want safety for all our children. And that's really how I see the Nasser case. It's really a start of talking about the untalkable, having these conversations in the schools, at the business table, at the lunch table, in our homes at the dinner table, so that we all have an awareness. And so we have safety in our communities. And it begins with each individual human being. And it also begins at the ballot box. You know, vote for those legislators who are willing to clean this up. It's Never more clear than in these last couple of years that our actions affect each other on a large scale. Within the system, what are the reforms that need to happen? We need to make sure that there are safe places for people to report and that judges have some training on trauma because you can go across the country. We can listen in on courts now with Zoom and you can hear judges saying, well, why did you wear that? Why did you go in the dark alley? Aren't you partially Mm. responsible for this? Who's responsible for a crime? Only the predator, whether it's a rape, whether it's a home invasion, whatever it is, it's the predator. And we don't have enough training as judges on these things. I have additional training because I teach law, because I was in the military, because I do a lot of reading on this. And it's an interest of mine because I want to do an effective job, but there's no requirement. And without the proper training... In these areas, the legal field will continue to fail. 
We also need more tethers. We can't house everybody pending a trial in jail, but we can put them on tether. We can put them on house arrest so the taxpayers are not paying. There's lots of things we can do. We need to have a limit so that when there's a rape and you go for the SANE examination, the DNA test is done within a week. Why can't we get a COVID test and the results in 15 minutes or 48 hours, but we can't do a rape test? Again, departments complain, well, we don't have enough money. Money should not stop justice from happening. Mm -hmm. We should not have a statute of limitations on rape. You know, the federal government could say on certain crimes, there's no statute of limitations. I mean, there's no statute of limitations on murder. I know. And really, rape is the murdering of a woman's soul. I know that you've stayed in touch with some of the girls. And I just wanted to know how they were doing. Overall, I think most of them are doing much better and working on healing and their trauma. Uh, Some of them have had some setbacks. Backward and forward they go, but that is very common in healing. Some of them now are having children. And I think it's very interesting because the medical field, I think is catching up on this, but not quick enough. Uh, Some of them who've had children have contacted me and said that was the worst experience of my life because I had a doctor's hands inside me. Mm. And I literally blacked out. And so I've advised some of them when I know they're pregnant, because you don't think about that until you're in the throes of childbirth. And now the trauma comes back because Nasser put his hands in them and did all sorts of things and they were uncomfortable and all that childhood trauma comes back. And now what should be a ha- the happiest day of their life, momentous, and they're looking to see that bright, shiny face of their child, they're literally going into trauma phase and freaking out. So I've advised many of them to deal with their doctors ahead of time, see if there's a female doctor, see if there can be a a nurse in the room, work with a therapist to prep them. And I think that was one of the most common complaints, uh, those who are getting in childbearing years saying, I I can't do this. Uh, And that's really a a message to the medical community, you know, let's catch up with this. So I don't know, they're having all sorts of things like that. I know there's some anorexia, alcoholism, drug addiction, there's some problems, but they're getting treatment because now they know the underlying cause for what they were suffering. And many of them are doing spectacularly, opening businesses, um, speaking, doing all sorts of things for change. You know, you you spent a lot of time in this case and these were uh, high profile athletes, many of them. Do you think athletes face different challenges when seeking justice? Yes. And it doesn't start in the courtroom. It starts really in the athletic room, whether it be the locker room or the floor, the balancing beam or whatever kind of sport you're in, it starts with the coach who really, and I love Miss Val Condos, UCLA coach. If you listen to her TED talk, she will say, she as a coach learned that you can only give 100%. So coaches saying, you know, I want 1000% or 110% is an unrealistic expectation. <laughs> Because it's not possible. And she talks about having been a coach that really didn't listen to her team. And the the girls came to her and said, we don't like your approach. And we're not feeling like we want to perform for you. And she really looked at that and said, okay, I'm going to learn a lesson. And so she started training the athletes with kindness. And she got a lot more out of them 
And I think that's really a lesson for all coaches. And studies have shown that kindness actually produces a better athlete than beating them down. They need to treat each athlete with kindness. They need to treat them as a finely oiled machine and take good care of them. And then if an athlete reports that someone has abused them, whether it be a team member, a doctor, a coach, there needs to be a process that is followed to document and to report and investigate. And without those underlying processes, we as a whole society cannot trust that the right things are doing and that it even gets to the legal field before a judge. But we need to stop the win-at-all-costs mentality. What we need to do is to say that each athlete is an asset and we will treat them with reverence instead of with pain so that money and medals matter over the safety of children. We have to get rid of that thinking. Safety first. It has to be safety first. In the military, I'm trained to kill, right? I can fire a weapon, but what am I taught first? Safety first. Why isn't that in sports? You are a weapon. (laughs) You're a weapon for good, for justice. (laughs) Well, yeah, I try. I love it. Um, So my last question is, uh, what would you tell other abuse survivors who are considering seeking legal justice? Talk, take action, treat yourself with kindness. Uh, Make sure that you keep talking. Don't let anybody shut you up or shut you down. Um, Find that right person to tell your story to and just don't stop talking. And just know that if it's happening to you, it is happening to others. And take the impossible and say, I am possible. I will change the world. I will change my life. And be that voice for yourself and for other persons who are not as strong as you. And when you speak, you gain your power. You start healing in that moment. And it doesn't matter. I've seen cases where it's a guilty. I've seen cases where it's not guilty, where I'm convinced there should have been a guilty verdict. But for whatever reason, the jury did their thing. And it's not what the verdict is. It's you using your voice and telling the world, I was hurt, you hurt me, and I am strong, and I am taking control of my life. And understand that predators never uh, forgive, because that's a sign of weakness, it's who they are. Predators are weak, but victims, they forgive, they speak out, and it's their superpower, it's their strength. As each victim gets stronger, each predator gets weaker. I get the chills every time I sit down and speak to you. And I just, there's so much dimension to who you are. And I love knowing you. I I just respect you so deeply. And having you in my life and having you on this podcast is just, it's an honor. And I just want to kind of end with one thing that you did for me personally, to give me a little bit of myself back. Um, when I got federally indicted, I was so ashamed. And I believed that everything I had done before that was wiped out, was erased. And that I was, you know, sort of just ruined. And and that nobody of, of depth and weight, n- nobody of legitimacy would ever look at me again. 
and even have a conversation with me. And I know you through my cousin and we became friends and you wrote a character letter for me for my sentencing. And I know that it played well at my sentencing. I know that it helped tremendously, but it also helped heal me tremendously. And everything you've done and everything you stand for and the quality of your character, if you believed that I could have a second chance, that I could restore some dignity and some some honor to my life, it helped me to believe that. And it is something I will never forget. And it is something that I will be forever in your debt for. And I know that you do this for both the victims and the perpetrators. Thank you for saying that. But I want to say something more to you. And that is that I know you matter. (laughs) And all I did was open the door. Molly, you, you did the hard work a million times over. All anyone can do is open the door, and I take no credit for the million fabulous things you've done since then. That speaks to your character, and that's what I saw in you, and that's what I continue to see in you. You are exemplary, and I wish everybody did what you did. You do something wrong because you're human, and then you write it, and that's on you. It's all on you. I didn't do anything but see your potential, and you felt it, and you took the ball, and you ran with it. You didn't stay on the sidelines and weep. I'm weeping right now. (laughs) (laughs) Crying like a baby right now. (sighs) Thank you. But you helped with that process, I'm telling you. And and I I know that you help so many other people. And um, this was powerful as always. And I just love you. Yeah, I love you right back. And thank (laughs) thank you very much. I'd like to remind those listening that if you or anyone you know is dealing with sexual assault, there are resources. You can start by calling the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673. Thank you for listening. I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio, It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Kelsey Albright and Nikki Stein. Tori Smith is our associate producer. Olivia Canny is our production assistant. Additional story editing from James Boo. Engineering by Nick Dooley. Original music by James Lovino. Special thanks to Allison Cohen and Matt Eisenstadt. Next time on Torch, we dive into the Stones Gambling Hall scandal, a poker controversy that made national headlines, pulled in the U.S. Department of Justice, and required an army of online sleuths to help crack it. There's no professional out there who would have done that. During that game, I had decided that there's no doubt in my mind. I mean, it's in my mind, it was like 90% chance that he's cheating. That's next time on Torched. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. We'll see you next time. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. 
You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. TruthFinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. I was shocked, you know. They were always such a good team, so successful. But to do something like that, to exceed their budget... While being over budget might not be a crime, it can disrupt workflows. With Monday.com, you and the team can be sure that you're all in sync. All the data, latest updates, files, and budgets are visible to everyone, so you won't miss a thing. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.